Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Discourse. I am your chronically absent host and today I'm being joined by my chronically absent uh, panel. Say hello, fellas, and, you know, put a little gusto into it. I'm high as shit right now. How's it going? Yeah. Well, we're all high. We're all tired, high on life, tired on marijuana. Um, (laughs) Why don't we... Why don't we hop right into it? That's not drugs in uh, Dare's Lung. That's, uh, you know, <laughs> that is sympathetic coughing for many of those who are still suffering from this COVID-19 pandemic, <laughs> which is ravaging the country. We've had some new news this week. Uh, the CDC has announced that people who are vaccinated will no longer have to wear masks when congregating outside and inside. And I know, you know, uh, do we come across as a pessimistic show? I don't want to come across as pessimistic or like cynical. Not that I really give a shit, but you know, I don't want people to think that I care what they do. Basically, I want to come across as informed, but not like I give too much of a shit like what people do with their free time. You know, apart from the effect it has on society. But John, you know, enough about me. What's going on with COVID nineteen? Why are you always so scared? Well, part of it has to do with the fact that the variants are on the rise, and, and now we've seen P1, the variant from Brazil, and, and some of the variants that are spreading across India now are the dominant variants in the UK. And we've seen some of these variants evade not only the Pfizer vaccine, but the J&J vaccine from what epidemiologists are studying. Now, we're not seeing like rates of 60% eva- evasion, but some of the studies coming out of Brazil show like 40% evasion of the Moderna vaccine. So it's really kind of concerning. And then the CDC comes out today and or what was it last week or a couple of days ago and says, OK, uh, Americans no longer need to meet wear masks at any point as long as they've been vaccinated. And immediately today, like right as soon as they did that, Walmart dropped like a couple hours ago. Walmart's no longer going to require masks in any of its stores. And the very day that the CDC came out with that. Bill Maher had to cancel his show on Friday night because he has been he came down with COVID, even though he's been vaccinated. And seven New York Yankees had to cancel games because they came down with COVID and they had to basically quarantine half the staff, even though they've all been vaccinated. So aside from the fact that, like, okay, you've been vaccinated. Now COVID is less dangerous to you. The chances of you having a bad experience under COVID are much, much less. But at the same time, you still can spread it to other people. And these people can spread it asymptomatically like Bill Maher did. So it seems to me that this is just a gigantic fucking push from the Biden administration to just get back to normal. And wouldn't you know it, the New York Times was building a poll from 700 epidemiologists and almost I think the majority of the epidemiologists and and I think it was less than 4% said that they would go around without masks, even though they were vaccinated. And this majority of them, almost 60 or maybe possibly even 70% said that they were going to be wearing masks for another year. So where is this fucking believe science party when you basically have the exact same things that were going under uh, at uh, uh, sorry exact same thing going down at the CDC uh, now that was going down under Trump, which is elected and appointed officials strong arm in their way into policies that benefit capital. Like last week, there's this story out and you can find it in multiple sources, but one of the best ones is Politico about one of the senior scientists at the CDC, a senior epidemiologist. She was the very first one in a national broadcast under Trump to come out and say, yo, this shit's going to be bad and we have to do something and it's going to be scary and we have to do something now and prepare for the worst. And Trump immediately demoted her, removed her from the spotlight, removed her from any public appearances at the CDC. And she was put in charge of like partial vaccine, uh, partially in charge of the vaccine rollout. Well, when Biden got elected, she was expected. And and I'm going to read you this paragraph. Missonier was expected to reemerge in the wake of President Joe Biden's election as part of the new administration's effort to put top scientists at the forefront of the covid response and restore the public trust in the federal government. But she clashed at times with Biden officials over decision making. And like when you read the rest, all of the articles between the lines, what it comes down to is basically this woman who was a top scientist resigned from the CDC because the Biden administration was pushing her to do stuff. And my guess, and I'm actually trying to contact this woman. So if anyone knows how to get in touch with her, please let me know um, to write up a story on her about whether or not it was the Biden administration's mass policy that basically forced her out the door. 
Because that's what it fucking seems like. Well, I mean, I, look, I think that where we are now, you know, we still have pockets of America, and I mentioned pockets of the world that are still suffering from, like, large, large infection rates and climbing infection rates. You know, India was just in the middle of its worst period of COVID-19 since it began. And we were struggling then with the question of whether or not it was right to lift the intellectual property rights on, you know, the vaccine owners, the pharmaceutical companies to allow for the exportation and essentially just the preservation of human life and just the preservation of our own life. The more the virus circulates out there in unvaccinated population, the more likely it is to mutate in a way that's going to affect vaccinated populations. Right. Not to mention the fact that we want to, you know, not we want to preserve uh, human life. And one point to add to that is that Pfizer literally was telling board members to expect massive profits not only from their mRNA vaccines related to COVID but from future boosters and that they were banking on future boosters to be a major income stream for them. You know, the impetus, like John said, is, I think, for the Biden administration to come in and say that the vaccine has symbolically, along with the Biden administration taking over, you know, lifted America out of this dark period of death and destruction. Where we're at doesn't really bear that to be true, because it's likely, given the amounts of deaths that are still occurring, that we'll still see uh, what another 100,000 people die here. And that's before we get into the phase where we're going to see variants and like booster shots, et cetera, et cetera. And the and the numbers. If nothing else, we're getting a lot of mixed messages still around the safety of personal activities, the public health aspect of this, like how far we've come. And from my perspective, as like an unwilling participant, it's an experiment. You know, we're all being experimented on, not necessarily with the efficacy of the vaccine on some large conspiracy, but with whether or not like this entire project of, you know, half vaccinations, like rushed vaccinations, social unrest revolving around people being unverifiably vaccinated and getting into conflict is even going to be worth it in the long term. But go ahead, Dader, sorry. No, you're good. Um, so I think there have been, so to start, I think there have been quite a few really good points made, right? Uh, the first, really when it comes to COVID in and of itself, when looking at some of the numbers, the reality of the situation is not as positive as people like to believe, right? Like, yes, numbers are trending lower now. They're not going back up just yet, right? So when winter happens, it's a lot, this virus apparently, from what I've read, tends to spread kind of like the flu does, right? So it does really, really well in the fall and winter. It doesn't do so hot in the spring and summer. So yeah, numbers are likely going to fall uh, relative to the, like to a, to a low value relative to what we've had in the last few months. That doesn't actually mean that things are getting better, right? Like it just, it doesn't mean like, and I think the the thing that's really frustrating is that that's understood by most people who see data and can look at it and read and they're like, okay, well, here's what's going on and have the access to talk to, you know, people who know more about this than they do, right? Which isn't everybody. But when you have that ability and like the people at the CDC certainly do, you don't feel optimistic. And so then already having that, being able to see, I think the danger more clearly than anybody else is, especially if you work at the CDC, right? You're not only a scientist, you're not only, you know, working on this, but you are at the center for disease control. You are at the spot that is supposed to help the U.S. overcome. You are at the spot that is supposed to help the U.S. overcome these things, right? That was mentioned by the former CDC director, uh, which is the, she's still acting. I don't think she left. The acting no, CDC she didn't director. leave. She's still there. Yeah. So the acting CDC director, right? It's not scripted. She in the and it's she mentioned this when she was giving the announcement that the CDC said schools could open, and she led with right before having this in, like this sense of impending doom. That's the if that's the feeling from the t, the chief scientist at the CDC. It's a pretty good you know barometer of where everybody is kind of at who has real access to that, right? And so. But this gets into the party of uh, party of let's believe in science. It sounds good, right? It's a really nice idea, but it's not the case, right? We've known about climate change for decades. The government's known, scientists have known, oil companies have known, right? Like it's 
way back when they, uh, the steam engine was first created, scientists observed that this might be great for the Scandinavia because the CO2 emitted into the atmosphere is going to increase global temperature. So winters might be a little bit more mild, right? So people have known about this. The scientific community has known about this. So the government has had to know about this, right? They had to have known about the dangers and they chose to ignore it, right? And you kind of see this weird thing happen, you know? I've talked to faculty and colleagues that I've had at, you know, at work who went to college before I did. There's a time when you went to university, if you studied the science, you only really studied your science. Nobody, like, unless you were wanting to become a client scientist or a meteorologist or, you know, an astrophysicist, you know, like, a lot of people didn't really learn a whole lot about climate science up until, you know, today where every single science class has a component on climate science and it's all this same message of impending doom like things are really really bad so you can't preside over a shift in the education system like this you can't preside and govern with this knowledge and not a not only keep it secret but b act like there was no problems going on and then c allow the actual polluters, these mega corporations in your own military to shift responsibility to the individual consumer, right? So like, there's, there's no party that believes in science. There's parties that believe in using science to sound legitimate, to continue to make sure their friends profit. And when it comes to COVID, wear a mask, get vaccinated. For the love of God, just keep wearing a mask. It's gonna, it's gonna help things out. I, I mean, frankly, there, I think that you make a great point, and I think what really helps the Democrats and a lot of people who may not necessarily identify specifically with Democrats but think of themselves as more science-based, you know, rational thinkers in our society, a lot of that is propped up by the existence of a portion, you know, of Americans who have been strategically cultivated to actively resist or deny science or social science or historical fact in a way that makes people who acknowledge it offhand but don't use it to shape or form their actions seem as though they are reasonable by comparison. And I think that was kind of always the danger of America kicking the can down the road until we had a a functional vaccine because then that was just going to become the barometer for what it meant to be like a moral responsible person and the idea that we would have to change our social behavior beyond just having a quick technological solution you know quick vaccine jab will just go away you know the idea that we might be able to make demands of one another about you know, polluting the environment with germs, with like regular pollution, using COVID and the demands it made on us in terms of how we treat each other and how we act in certain spaces, you know, to better as a society. Instead, it seems like most people are just ready to put this dark period behind us for some legitimate and some illegitimate reasons. Right. Well, I was going to say is like, you know, they just did a poll of people who are willing to get the vaccine and people who are not. And it's like 47 percent of Republicans are not. which bring, And it brings up to like almost 42 percent of white people are saying, no, they're not going to get the vaccine. And, you know, it's it's just kind of like, OK, well, the idea that the vaccine was going to return us to normalcy when you have such a large cohort of the population who's saying, nah, fuck the vaccine and is just going to act as Petri dishes for variants. It, it was ludicrous to begin with because it was always politicized. I mean, Trump's out there bragging about he, how he's responsible for the vaccine and the majority of the Trump supporters are saying we're not going to get it. it. It's it's a weird mix of politics that's turning into some sort of grievance that's going to just as with everything as with environmental issues as with austerity it's just going to cause more deaths the narrative has long since superseded the need to be tethered to reality like the narratives that people tell each other about trump about like the republican party about the democrats about like how they're rational about all this stuff has long since superseded needing to be tethered to reality or even any real opposition to their ideas like the idea that there are 
people out there who are forcing kids to get these vaccines that, you know, are forcing people, you know, to wear masks under penalty of death is going to be basically in every Republican campaign fundraiser for for like the next year, even as we know all of them get vaccinated. Since we don't have a real oppositional party on the left to hold people to account or demand that these narratives that exist in the media are tethered to like real material change or circumstances, people are just allowed and you are allowed to say and do whatever they want. Which is why we get the CDC telling us that we should lose masks while 70 or 90 percent of all epidemiologists that are paneled out of 700 say, no, I'm going to wear a mask for the next year. And you should, too. I was talking to somebody I know who's a microbiologist recently about the actual variants and what's going on with those vaccines. And according to this friend, um, mRNA vaccines are actually really easy to uh, to change. Right. So you would have since we already have this covid-19 vaccine readily available, they should be able to make variant vaccines much, much, much quicker, which could potentially help put it into this a lot sooner. Uh, one of the problems being that if we don't get the initial vaccine rolled out globally, then the yep. we, we bump into this thing. Well, do we just keep keep yeah. Americans vaccinated against the most yep. latest COVID? But you know, everybody else in other countries are going to be like three generations behind. So, like, which is why, like, when Biden said. Well, Biden said this week that they're going to support TRIPS waivers, but they didn't back the the WTO push from South Africa and um, from India that would have backed not only the TRIPS waivers, but also all concurrent and necessary technology to be waived, have IP waivers as well. And so now it's going to be like six more months of negotiation where the Biden administration has already basically allowed for pharma lobbyists into that process. So here we, uh, we had the Biden administration take one step forward, and instead they're now taking 10 steps back and getting to the point where like we where we're already at which is these pharmaceutical companies demanding infrastructure as assets uh, from countries to hold in case of liability from the vaccine doing such and such to the populace it's it's just fucking insane from what I read, it, it was reported that, you know, Biden had made some sort of commitment to releasing it. But really, all he had said is the Biden administration said that they were willing to go to negotiations at the WTO about doing that, not right. actually doing it or like what they didn't even they didn't lay out what conditions they were going to place on their uh, on releasing it or any of that stuff. So it was just kind of uh, lazily reported as, oh, yeah, now, you know, that thing that he promised that guy that was going viral on Twitter. Yeah, uh, he's actually done something about that when he hasn't which has been kind of the theme of a lot of his executive orders and a lot of his actions or lack thereof so far and i just wanted to get in a little bit on what's been going on with covid and with the mask ruling or rule change uh, being related to you know whether you're vaccinated or not immediately the first question that any like that people in retail and everywhere else was like well how are we going to distinguish people that are vaccinated from people that aren't vaccinated and there wasn't really any any rollout for that. I know when I got my first vaccine, I got a card, and I think that's what they've been doing more or less uh, for most people is some sort of uh, paper card for vaccination. But it's not going to be practical to have in most like retail environments to have people present that in any sort of way. As you mentioned earlier, Walmart is dropping their mandate. So it's like if you're an immunocompromised employee and you know you have people that aren't going to get vaccinated, that at work, then you're going to be arguing and fighting with management about whether, you know, like, well, I don't want to work next to this person who I know is not wearing a mask because we don't have a rule, but like we haven't verified that they're vaccinated. And it's like, it's going to create all these little, all this kind of discord at, in all sorts of environments is where it might work for, you know, airline travel where there's already a kind of procedural thing going on there. It's not going to be as practical for a lot of retail environments. And it's like the thing that people were able to do was like point to a sign you know hey you know put your mask on and it didn't they didn't have to worry about you know like fighting you after we got over that initial you know oh you know i have a health exemption card or whatever those fake things that were going around not legitimate health exemptions but and i guess the other point about that about the whole kind of mixing of vaccinated people and unvaccinated people without having any sort of really enforceable mask mandates is but it feels like it wouldn't be that big of an issue if it's, you know, just the people that are refusing to get vaccinated. But obviously there's some people that want to get vaccinated and just haven't had the opportunities available to them. And then there's some people that just can't get vaccinated because of immuno situations or various other situations that uh, allergies and such that prevent them from being vaccinated. And they're relying 
on that herd immunity. And so the anti-science position of just dropping the mask mandate before we are even really close to this herd immunity or have a realistic chance of approaching it based off of people's responses to polling. Who knows if this carrots and sticks that are being pl- or offered in states about like free beers and lotteries and all that stuff is how what kind of effect that's going to have overall. But like you said, the New York Times report and most of the scientists seems like the U.S. is not likely to get to herd immunity. And so those people are just in danger. <laughs> and there's no... Go ahead. No one is going to read past the initial announcement that people don't have to wear masks anymore. And frankly, you're right. You know, the burden of enforcing or keeping people safe, you know, who have to shop or who have to be allowed to eat in restaurants and who have to be allowed to like pretend as though things are normal or going back to normal or finally back to normal has always been on like the service worker or like the retail worker or like the administrative worker. Right. That burden has always been shunted from the government onto like these people who are otherwise told that they can't make $15 minimum wage because they don't deserve it. And all we really know is that it's going to be a lot of fights. There are going to be a lot of fights in the street over whether or not people are doing the right thing because there's been a lot of misinformation out there. Frankly, from my perspective, the, you know, the idea, like Adair was saying, that, yeah, it might be easy theoretically to revamped this current vaccine to cover new variants as they arise but the idea that america can do that efficiently given what we saw in the first time around i think to believe that would display a certain amount of naivete right you know like okay we fucked it up so bad the first time that one in 300 americans died but certainly we've learned our lesson i don't know why anyone i don't know why anyone would believe that when has that ever proven true is that true about gun violence I just wanted to quickly mention that, like, there's still a seven-day average of over 600 people dying a day and over 30,000, close to 40,000 cases. Like, it's still very bad right now. Like, And that case rate is actually a little bit suppressed because the rate of people who are getting testing means that we're actually missing a whole shit ton of asymptomatic cases as well that we were catching before when testing rates were higher. And there's a new study that comes out that says the death toll around the world might actually be twice as high, especially in the United States. There's there's evidence that suggests that we might be at 900,000 deaths rather than 500,000. It really is bad still, but I think the way it's bad now, the way the badness is distributed now is kind of what people were hoping it would be like from the beginning, that we would be able to segregate society into those populations who were normally most vulnerable anyway and have the virus mostly ravage them while the rest of the people who are normally protected or considered under capitalism, under, you know, American uh neoliberalism under american neoconservatism as valuable are left largely unmolested i mean we've been unable to convince people with this virus specifically that society is able to be divided into these discrete segments of people who are safe and people who are you know a little bit less safe but that's largely the result of their own personal choices very successfully yet and this vaccine being rolled out i think is the mark of the political media establishment now being able to complete the narrative that those who are dying are going to be doing so because they've chosen not to do the right thing before they was a little bit harder because a lot of people in a lot of industries were losing their jobs were dying people were dying all over the place but now with the vaccine people are much more willing to at least i think believe that those who are unvaccinated or who those who are most susceptible are only going to be the ones who are these anti-science people these anti-vax people they're going to forget about the people who can't be vaccinated because they are immunocompromised they're going to forget about people who just don't have access yet and they're going to just pretend as though it's a, you know, this is a problem that can, like other problems, be largely segmented off into parts of the world that are used to that kind of thing. Yeah, not yeah. to mention the, the supply chain issues that are like are, we're starting to bump into just because when you try to restart the consumer economy that the United States is, everybody's in the on the globe has been so 
driven towards efficiencies that it's there's no margin for error and so something like this you can't just rubber band right back into things it's like there's just too much slack and like yeah just-in-time manufacturing principles have breaked in fragility into almost all supply chains because by necessity they've removed all redundancies in order to maximize profits so that's it done you like you just said you can't rubber band back because we can't bring back auto workers because we're running out of chips because we so we can't make cars and like that's not just we can't make cars well we also can't make uh irons for clothes or anything else that we've put uh transistors and chips into for no fucking reason um like the internet of things has made it so that we can't even get some simple products that we otherwise would be able to bounce back in manufacturing for which is why like when the jobs numbers came out we saw massive layoffs in the jobs uh area which made the predictions of a million jobs added in april just fucking tank Meanwhile, yeah. in, in in hospitality, you've seen a three month rise of rates of pay by seventeen percent, and the the labor market there is the tightest it's been ever, with hires going through the roof, which is literally the only thing pushing hires. And instead of saying, "Oh, okay, well, we need to do something about these," like you said, manufacturing slowdowns or nursing slowdowns, because that's another area we've lost jobs in. Republican governors are cutting UI and saying, "No, we need to get people back into these work, uh, these places of work for demanding where they're demanding higher wages." Once these Republicans with all of their money, not just Republican politicians, but Republican just donors with all their money decide that like asking people to wear a mask now that the CDC said it wasn't really necessary is a violation of their rights. You know, how long before we now start seeing court case after court case saying that you can't ask people for vaccination cards, that you can't you know, ask people at work or who you employ, have they been vaccinated because it violates EO or disability uh, laws, right? The idea that that won't happen because we're such a society that's dedicated to the preservation of human rights over the preservation of this narrative that there's a fright that's constantly being like demised by this overreaching nanny state is again i think unrealistic but it but it's not human rights because like right now the the they just had a referendum in mississippi where they said 70 percent of the population voted to legalize weed which would give the state's rights argument and also the individual rights argument to the population of mississippi and Republican appointed governor, uh, Supreme Court just overruled it based on a rule set in 1940, I believe, that said five counties have to ratify any type of referendum, but they haven't had five counties since 2001 when they eliminated one. So they just basically, in order to eliminate the popular vote and popular will, which again gets to personal rights of having legalized weed, these Republican judges all just said, now nah, we're just going to ignore that. And now any referendum that happened since 2001 one in mississippi is out the fucking window they don't believe in it it's just bullshit absolutely and it's very likely that we'll end up in a situation down the line immediately who knows where vaccine status vaccine necessity is the same as you know gun laws right state by state it varies city by city it varies which you know in a country this large trying to fight a pandemic it's just not feasible it, it just, it, you know, that just means that there won't be any herd immunity. And I think that, again, that allows for this narrative to, to exist like narratives about gun violence amongst sort of the liberal elite, the sort of the people who believe themselves to be both sympathetic and enlightened about social issues, but also constantly calling for the blood of people in the South for voting wrong. It allows them to just create another narrative about why they are better than people who are choosing to live in places where people don't have to wear masks. People don't have to prove that they got vaccinated, you know, where employers are unable to validate uh, vaccination amongst employees. So everyone's at risk, right? You know, a lot of this stuff, I think, relies on faith institutions that we know have broken down. And for me, the focus has been on whether or not the technological solution in terms of the vaccine is capable of solving the very discrete problem of the virus. When every other part of that equation about the distribution, about the social issues, about everything has failed around this technological solution. So, you know, yeah, I don't see how it possibly could ever lead us to normalcy when we just won't do it properly. It just speaks to a belief inherent in Americans that there's just an inherent technological solution to every problem. But like we just can't even roll out the vaccine, much less come together as a country to make sure that there's like a real standard amongst. Well, I mean, like what was it? C- CVS and Walmart or Walgreens were it was reported were 
like tossing, uh, I think it was 4 million vaccine doses a day um, at one point because they just didn't have an efficient distribution process. And yet our government. Our government decided that the public-private partnership with CVS and Walgreens was the best way to distribute it, rather than working directly with CDC, local hospitals, and the Social Security Administration. Well, the J&J factory in Baltimore had to throw out millions of doses multiple times. And then they had that crazy uh, review by the FDA fucking regulators that was just like, this place is basically in shambles. All of the lax regulations that we've had in place when it comes to pharmaceutical companies for years has led to this factory being substandard across the board. And it's just like, yeah, it's things like that. It's things that you know, have been building up as like holes in our infrastructure for years, our social infrastructure, our healthcare infrastructure, you know, our ability to hold accountable, you know, the private part in the public part of these private public partnerships. And we just can't do it. We, we're running short on plastic bags for salination for do, giving IVs. We're running short on everything. I mean, the like it's much less of a scientific problem as to whether or not we can come up with a vaccine to solve a virus, but whether or not and much more of like a question of whether us as Americans are capable of effectively establishing a new sort of social program. You know, that will by necessity eventually have to be largely untethered from the private market, because I don't see how that can possibly exist as a standard for getting this done. And I was just thinking, is like it, coronavirus in nineteen. It is like it's a novel virus, and so it it's not nothing. It's not. It was not a nothing virus, and it was not nothing to be concerned about. But there have been several countries that have demonstrated that a competent response could result in a real mitigating the the consequences significantly. Both, and both it's like population wise and economically. Yeah, and so it's like it's it's not so much like the points that you're making about all the other compounding aspects is like it really is really central to the to the issue at hand is that the the virus itself was only a very small part of what happened and like what we were seeing and all the con negative consequences a lot of that is far more a result of our society and the structures of our society and how our society responded than it is the virus but it's easier for our society and for our politicians especially to focus on the virus and then to put an end to the virus assuming in, in like an end to trump and so now things are better even if materially they are the same worse or you know not improving for tens of hundreds of millions of people yeah i mean you look at Ven you look at vietnam you look at um even bolivia or cuba where they're now releasing i think it's two of their vaccines are now going to testing phase and release phase in the public um and you look at china's response versus india's response and and you know like the biggest argument i've been getting into is people when i tell people about new zealand like okay new zealand has had the best economic recovery they've had very few cases very few deaths they have a strict lockdown and they're like well that's a small country on an island it's okay well vietnam's not an island it's got 94 million people and they've had minuscule amounts of death their economy has ramped back up much faster and much better than the united states did and they didn't need to do the the extreme amounts of public spending even though it's a communist country so you know that's not apples to apples that the u.s did in order to buttress the assets of the capitalist and there's a lot of ignorant assumptions that you know oh it's this communist country so it must have been authoritarian crackdown you know welding people in their houses or whatever you know like the things that were going around and it's like no it's like they actually right away started offering masks in public getting people out like out of like getting people off of work so if they were sick and stuff like that they did all of the, ba the most borders. basic things yeah and it, this is with a uh, vastly less money per capita to spend in order to resolve this is like you know the u.s had so much more money per citizen to spend in order to resolve this and it did so much worse no i mean like just think about hospital beds per capita vietnam when they saw this thing coming they started ramping up the available hospital beds what did the united states do nothing they, they did like they didn't even do the they were making fun of China for building gigantic hospitals just for covid it like overnight while also being skeptical that the hospitals were real thinking that they were just make like make believe hospitals right. <laughs> like to to just to brag like to show off you know to fake show off that they could build something like that it's like no they they needed it and they built it and then the but... <laughs> wait, and then the first fucking week we don't even have toilet paper like the very first fucking week it's like how can you look at us and think that this is a 
This is a thriving economy, a thriving con- uh, country. When we can't get toilet paper right now, we we can't even get like I was saying, plastic bags for saline, which are, should be the easiest thing in the world to manufacture. We can't get chips for anything, so that like our cars and tech co- sectors are falling and and having to massively lay people off. Uh, like, how is it that you think this is functioning? Like, this is just we're, not. We're a shining beacon on a hill. It's just we're a shining beacon fire. Yeah. Well, no, well, exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's it. American Americans love their freedom so much. They love their freedom so much that there was no way they'd ever submit to anything as simple as like wearing a mask, even if it saved their life. And, you know, that's just something that other countries don't have. You know, some of them value their lives a little bit more than like, you know, I hate to say it virtue signaling alternatively americans are also so fucking stupid lazy that if you offer them even a dollar more to stay home than work they won't go to work you know there are two wolves inside americans the wolf that will die you know rather than burden themselves with even the smallest sign of like public safety awareness and a wolf who is just so fucking lazy that if you don't basically force them to work, they will just die in their own filth. That is like the media political establishment's viewpoint of like Americans. Because, you know, at the same time we're talking about Americans dying, we're also talking about like how do we get Americans back to work now that they've had a little bit of taste of what it means to not have to do it. But I mean, like, here's the thing, you know, that uh, that concept of Americans not wanting to get back to work, like that's not even borne out in the numbers. That's just a Chamber of Commerce talking point. If you looked at sectoral data um, over the, the course of April, what you have is it's mid and high wage er, weight earners, the industry, the the like tech workers that have fallen off, that have lost jobs, whereas low wage workers have risen, bounced back incredibly, which is the only reason we saw 200,000 jobs added. And if it had been otherwise, we would have seen masses losses. But because we have an entire population that can't even be bothered to know about this stuff, the Chamber of Commerce can put out some study that they say is a study with no backing that says one in four people are not returning to work because they're getting UI benefits. And then every Republican governor under the sun starts cutting them and everybody in news. And, and I, I did a whole segment on this. The AP, Washington Post, or the AP, the New York Times, uh, NPR, and I believe Wall Street Journal and, and I'll, I'll put out a pieces with the framing that the unemployment benefits were the reason why we saw such poor jobs report in April. Meanwhile, actual economists from fucking Goldman Sachs were were getting together with actual economists from CEPR, which is a very left-wing economic think tank, and saying, no, 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 this is not true. This is not true. And the only ones who were reporting on that were the Washington Post. Like everybody else just ran with this fucking thing that was made out of whole cloth because we have a stupid goddamn press who's lazy as fuck and ignorant. And we have a stupid goddamn populace that's lazy as fuck and ignorant. And we have all of these politicians who benefit from both of those situations. Well, I mean, yeah, they're lazy and fucking ignorant. But even worse than that, like a lot of them have convinced themselves that they have mastered some of these like shortcuts to seeming very smart and seeming very informed about things, even as they just like repeat incredibly, like you said incorrect dated reactionary talking points you know it's just common knowledge that like people need to be forced to work otherwise they're just lazy they're too lazy to work and you know by people they mean poor people right people who they right but it's heavily racially coded of course it's heavily racially coded but you know basically it's always a narrative that involves like people other than me need to be forced under the you know threat of violence to be productive otherwise they just lack the moral fortitude internally to do it right there's you know blacks poors used to be the irish uh now each party has their own variation of that all still overlapping with poor and racially coded but the talking points that revolve around people being informed in this country are based in collective myths about what it means to be an American. And now I think we have seen this weaponization in the media of collective ignorance and a fear of being exposed for your collective ignorance uh, through like, you know, constant trolling about like the complexity of issues that aren't very complex. 
Oh, should that segue us into the next part? Sure, let's segue into the next part. I'll probably cut that segue out because it sucked, but I'm tired. So let's just segue no, in. It did not. No, that was a good segue because this, the, the entire thing, the entire history of what's happening right now is predicated on the fact that Americans and most of the world was told this is a, a very complex problem when it's not. It's incredibly fucking simple. Well, the complexities of the genocide of Palestinians by the Israeli government and the Israeli people is more about the overlapping motives that are encouraging you know, populations in Israel, outside of Israel to support this genocide. So like evangelical Christian anti-Semites who support Israel's uh, Hindu nationalists in India who support the geno this genocide, then military industrial complex who just want to sell weapons and also support this genocide. You know, like there are various White supremacists in South and Central America. Exactly. So, you know, there are a lot of overlapping reasons that are a little bit more complex than everyone just hates Muslims, but only just barely. That's like the majority of the complexity, I would argue. What most people, I think, mean about the complexity are larger, like, contextual issues related to anti-Semitism in the world. Yeah, it, it's right now they're 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 killing children in Gaza indiscriminately, and. You know, what what are we saying? We're, the, our media and everyone else is talking about their ass about it being both sides with heavily coding towards being more sympathetic to Israel. And it's kind of like, well, what are you talking about here? You're talking about people who are building like quasi almost homemade rockets versus people who have F-35s and are blowing up apartment buildings. And, and it's just it's really quite something. And I, I highly recommend everyone go watch. Because it's not just the Israeli government. So I highly recommend everyone go watch. Abby Martin uh, was walking around Israel and interviewing everyday Israeli citizens. And the stuff that was coming out of their mouth, the, 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 like, just we have to carpet bomb them. We have to kill all Arabs. Like, all of this, this genocidal language was just prevalent throughout the entire populace. There was one where a little girl just said, started laughing and saying, yeah, we got to kill all the Arabs. And... And, and like the, the, the fact of the matter is when you look at it through that lens, when you look at it through what the Likud government has done combined with all governments previously, when you look at the, the colonial project of Israel and then you look at the language that's being used by the populace, it, it becomes even more clear than it already was when you just consider the violence that's been done to the Palestinian people. Well, I mean, I think that's the thing that we're seeing now, that for more and more people, especially with the, you know, the further democratization of free speech with the, you know, the popularization of social media of celebrities on social media you know we're seeing a lot more people coming out and coming to the realization that yeah you know the argument that this was much more complex than uh one side trying to genocide the other is rapidly falling apart the same way the arguments surrounding the complexities of police brutality in america falling apart under the you know the light of just video evidence and personal testimony because like it's hard to understate how just you know 10 years ago maybe five years ago the talking maybe five years ago the talking point of both you know both sides violence both sides is complicated you know hamas is a terrorist group and blah 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 like how that was just like the you know and rather like the two-state solution and like you know that was the height of like intellectual commentary on the israel-palestine conflict coming from like people who presume themselves to be intellectuals right and of course we have like the warmongers coming out of like neoconservative think tanks who are writing think pieces about like you know why, why we have to invade and fund every war in the middle east but you know i think the general discourse around israel amongst liberals who would have claimed to care about like oppression generally is that this was a complex issue for me you know i'm 30 now i've been hearing that the israel palestine issue is complex for like 20 years from from liberals and to me that's a sign or rather like that's the giveaway that is actually not that complex because for sure you could have learned it in 20 years right for sure you could have learned a little bit about it if you cared in 20 years that's just the way you know and there are a lot of shortcuts like i said the, you know, i believe science um getting vaccinated but not following any of the other guidelines etc cetera, etc cetera, that liberals have learned to 
signal that they are smart and informed about the world without actually being, again, having to be tethered to any real material changes for people. And that's not to say they're not encouraged to be this feckless because like, yeah, the political media establishment along with a lot of like special interest groups over the years have ruined the lives of Palestinian professors, activists, et cetera, et cetera, speaking out against this, the BDS movement leading up into like, COVID-19 and all throughout was the victim of, rather, people who led the BDS movement were the victim of smear campaign, harassment campaigns, BDS was outlawed in states, you know, censorship, and, you know, we still found ourselves, like, arguing the complexities, but go ahead, John. No, what I was going to say was one of the things I, I, I noticed, my, I've been watching, I've been having my phone in my hand like religiously for the past week and two weeks almost. And what I've noticed is that it's everyday people sharing video and maybe Al Jazeera uh, sharing video of the atrocities being committed. Pictures of Gaza from people who are actually in Gaza. Pictures of the, the in Lod, I think that's how you pronounce it, the, the pogroms that are happening. Pictures, allude, uh, pictures of the the lynching that happened in the city where they pulled the guy out of his car. And meanwhile, like Jake Tapper is tweeting about nothing but his book. Ma uh, Maddow didn't even put a single minute of airtime in the past two weeks to the conflict. Um, you had Matt, Chris Hayes, you know, that, that bastion of fucking leftism that's supposed to be on television had one goddamn segment over the past two weeks and did, and was very heavily pro-Israel and then did another one last night where it was somewhat not. I mean, the only one who's been on mainstream television who's been saying anything about this is Betty Hassan. And I hate that piece of shit, and he's the only one who's fucking doing anything about this. So, like, in my timeline, you have everyday people, and I mean this, everyday people who are just sharing and talking about this and telling us, this is not complicated. This is genocide. This is absolutely 1,000% ethnic cleansing. This is not a complicated issue. This is illegal, and this is criminal. And and then you have the media doing nothing about it. And then you have half the politicians saying, nope, this is fine. So it's like it's it's why, like you said, five years ago, you would not have seen the numbers of people in the streets in Chicago that we saw yesterday. You would not see these protests, much like we saw with George Floyd. You would not see these uprisings around the country and around the world in support of these things. Um, I think to understand that, you have to kind of look at some of the myths that support the legitimacy and morality of colonialism and imperialism in the minds of, you know, most liberals who navigate the world with blinders on and who might instinctually otherwise believe the right thing, right? Because it takes, I would argue, it takes a lot to get people to ignore like atrocities that they've otherwise been taught to think are bad just generally. And part of that myth is this undercurrent of idea that you can find in also domestic policing as well that sands this kind of, you know, regime, this kind of oppressive violence that there would just be chaos reigning, you know, that's worse than the chaos that's reigning now, but that chaos would spread out amongst the world, would spread to Europe, just would spread back to America, a la, you know, the, the war in Iraq. If we don't get them over there, they'll come over here. You know, this idea that there would be chaos if not for like this monopoly on violence that's exercised by the police or by Israel and against Palestine, uh, which precludes the and, you know, of course, you know, precludes the right to of the people who are being oppressed to self-defend. Uh, right. You know, there would be worse chaos. Right. I think that once you get people seeing videos of like all of the violence and just complete one sided devastation, it becomes hard to maintain that narrative because people can't imagine worse chaos than like, yeah, you know, the IDF bombing a bunch of hospitals or like destroying a bunch of fucking, you know, apartment buildings. It's hard for them to put something worse into their head because that's it doesn't get much worse than that yeah for this for the second time since uh, 2014 the very first target inside of gaza was the news station yeah you know it doesn't get much worse than like bombing civilian centers it doesn't get just like it doesn't get much worse than like a cop pushing down an 80 year old, old man with a flower and busting his skull open on the floor it's like there are just some things that you can see and you can keep you know even having been indoctrinated into a society that tells you that though this is necessary to make sure that you are safe and that you're comfortable and it's like, okay, but damn, you know, and it's not everybody and God knows it takes a lot, but certainly like 
once it's visible to these people, they have an instinctual gut reaction because, you know, part of American is this, you know, and perhaps this is a flaw of Americans since they want to do so much evil is convincing them that they're on the right side. You know, that they're on the right side of every issue. And it becomes harder and harder to do that when there's just so much evidence to the contrary, especially when people are no longer consuming media, uh, traditional media sources the way they used to to be indoctrinated by them. I just wanted to add to the last point that Trump also primed people for this thing where they could have a, an emotional gut reaction to something and then they could immediately, you know, have a political like response to it. And like so they want to do that. They want to continue doing that, but they don't have Trump or Republicans to to easily and cleanly blame for a lot of these things. So it's, whether it's uh, Palestine, Israel, or it's a variety of other issues, it's causing a lot of uh, cognitive dissonance. So I think for me, the big thing with this, right, when Mike Brown was murdered back in Ferguson, right, right after things were happening, Palestinians were on Twitter, were on Facebook, were on all over social media, and identified the exact tear gas canisters that were being used against those protesters as were used against them and were like here's how you can avoid it the best here's how to best clean it out here's what you do if you get you know if it gets into your eyes etc and to sit here and see the things that are being done to the palestinian people by the israeli government i i see that israeli apartheid is inherent is is the same as american right like they they pulled from the american blueprint and you know like and because i don't because i'm not you know i'm not jewish i'm not palestinian i've spent my time trying to look and listen and learn so one of the things that really struck me was a jewish rabbi from south africa uh was calling out israel's apartheid like think about that a dude who lived through south african apartheid through the violence that that was is sitting here and is saying to the Israeli government, what you are doing is apartheid and genocide and you need to stop, right? And you still see in America, this funding of just the, mur the murder of children, the bombing of neighborhoods, you know, a, a government that's propping up roving groups of uh, really just lynch mobs, like pulling people out of their cars to lynch them. It, I I cannot see how you can take a stance other than to side with Palestine. Like I just I just don't see it. And a lot of Americans, like so, people will call like the BDS movement uh, anti-Semitic for saying because they're saying, well, you're conflating the government with the people. Well, you're saying no, what the government is doing is wrong. It's not conflating the government with the people. I think you know what I mean. Like so, people especially in America, are terrified to even learn about what's happening other than to, like, they're taught so blindly to follow Israel. And if they say, well, hey, no, I support Palestine, you know, any number of things that could be said, like, people will, people have lost their jobs for being pro-Palestine. Yeah, and it shows, it shows, like, what you said, like, it shows white America, like, hey, yes, this is necessary to keep you protected, but I think the perspective as a black American is that it's a reminder that this kind, like, the level of state violence that can go unchecked and even praised by some people. I'm always reminded of Baldwin's Moral Monsters quote. It's like, that's what I look at. I see yeah. American Moral Monsters. But I just wanted to quickly touch on the history, like, some of the younger listeners or whatever might not quite like part of the justification for both our support of Israel and even as absurd as it is Saudi Arabia was the concept of expanding democracy in the Middle East. And so like Israel being the sole democracy supposedly in the Middle East, like, so that's where like the liberal mind frame is, is like, you know, it's both sides. There was these bombers and there's rockets. And it's like, in their mind, it's way more like, it's not nearly as one-sided. It's not nearly as violent. This They still have, a, like, a pre-Iron Dome imagination where, like, a lot more of the rockets were landing. And it's like, it's the, the no, it was bad then, but it's even several tiers worse now. And especially in the last few weeks, it has just gotten immensely just terrible. To speak to that, though, I mean, as the, the oldest member of the pod, like, growing up, 
we weren't provided with like body counts. We weren't provided with anything unless it was Israelis. So we weren't told and, and like in the general press, you really had to look for it. And most of the time by looking for it, it was literally going to like a, a human rights campaign action. And some guy handed you a mimeograph fucking sheet. That was the only place you could get told, okay, how many Palestinians were the Israelis killing in this action? And like to give everyone a perspective, just from 2008 to 2020, there have been 251 Israelis killed by these rocket attacks. Uh, and there have been 5,590 Palestinians killed by missile attacks from F-35s or various military actions. Combine that when you look at the injuries. Just think about what we saw, what was that, last year or the year before during the Nakba where they were trying to uh, approaching fences in Gaza. And we talked about it on the show. Israeli snipers were shooting with 50 caliber sniper rifles from 500 yards out people in the knees, in the arms, trying to take off limbs. So when you look at injuries, like just in 2019, in the conflict that was going on in 2019, there were 15,628 Palestinians injured and only 133 uh, Israelis injured. And when you say injured, keep in mind that just today, or actually, sorry, yesterday, the New York Times released an injury count that considered uh, Israeli injuries to con con include PTSD diagnosis. Also, it's like there's like nine countries that don't see what Israel, or at least in the UN, that say that they don't see what Israel's doing is basically war crimes and all these. And it's the United States and a handful of our allies. And the rest of the world recognizes this for the crimes against humanity. It is similar to the situation with the U.S. and Cuba as far as just the, the sheer number of uh, the rest of the world clearly recognizing what's happening but because the military force of the united states stands on the other side of the issue there's only so much that can be done on the u.n security council yesterday a vote took place to put a censor on uh, israel in condemning the violence and 14 out of the 15 u.n security council members voted for it and because the u.s holds a veto power on the u.n security council u.s was able to stand alone and prevent that from happening just the thing that strikes me about this whole conversation is that when we talk about it, or rather when we talk about Israel's abuses of Palestine, we often put Israel into this kind of like separate category that I think, you know, insinuates that people feel uniquely about Israel's rights to uh, genocide Palestine versus other populations, which I think is a misstep because ultimately speaking, America supports countries and populations and like uh, military juntas and paramilitary groups all over the world committing atrocities with no real accountability or expectation of accountability. And we've done it for generations. Israel is just another one of those. I think that America's just uniquely Americans are uniquely good at disguising the atrocities that Americans commit or are implicated in committing around the globe. And when we're forced to reckon with them, we just create a new special pleading that is meant to absolve America responsibility or allies of responsibility. And complexity of the situation just happens to be the specific one that we use for the Israel-Palestine situation. But it cannot be looked at in some kind of vacuum outside of America's general neoconservative policy of genociding all around the world, right? And so I think that the part that kind of gets me is that you know we have a population of pseudo erudite like pundits in their in not inner circle but their closest circle of like readers you know the semi-voracious you know not paying attention readers of the new york times who have learned like mockingbirds to parrot it's complicated it's complicated whenever they hear these things yet never feel the need to inform themselves or demand to be better informed by the people who are telling them it's too complicated for them to understand right it, but still feel smart from doing that they are taught to put this you know israel palestine conversation in a vacuum versus all of the other terrible oppressive regimes that we support around the globe like you said like saudi arabia at the same time we're pretending like we care about the anti-semitism going on in the middle east we're supporting literal neo-nazi groups in poland and in ukraine and hungry and colombia is popping well that's what right i was gonna too. say richard i wanted to say like ten thousand people are in the streets of colombia yesterday to protest this new taxation and the murder 
of what, like 128 people that happened the day before. And I, I think part of the thing of putting Israel in a special box is because the the stuff with Palestine and the, the atrocities and the genocide that's being committed on Palestine actually gets coverage. In the United States, there was fucking zero coverage about Colombia because Colombia is clearly a client state, right? Like the Yemen war has far, fallen off the course, even though we're still helping to form a blockade that's starving massive people on a scale on that is the worst humanitarian crisis in the world uh and like you mentioned in poland ukraine and hungary we're literally still giving weapons and support to people like the azov battalion who are nazis who are self-described nazis what i think is interesting and about what you said though is like you said we put israel in a box because we are forced almost by virtue of the special relationship that we have with Israel. And I don't know what else, but we are forced to actually talk about it. Whereas with these other places, it's it's just almost verboten. You just don't ever talk about Colombia. In fact, like whenever you talk about strife in South or Central America, all you talk about is Venezuela or sometimes Brazil. You don't talk about like what's going on in Chile, what's going on in Colombia, what's going on in Argentina, what's going on in Peru. You don't talk about like anyone unless they have a leftist government that we want to overthrow. Our news just ignores it otherwise. You know, and and so I don't know why Israel is placed in that box at the, where we do talk about it, but we have my entire life. I just been also in have the news. to I, I just have to also mention the massive protests in Haiti against the puppet regime that the U.S. Another tried one. to exactly. keep flare. Another one. Exactly. Like those places get erased. But for whatever reason, in our discourse, in the, the cultural conversation of America for my entire lifetime, ever since I was a little kid, we've been having the conversation about Israel and Palestine. We have not been having the conversation about how, what was it, Argentina array, uh, killed almost 96% of their Afro-descent uh, Afro population, right? Their, their um, Afro-indigenous descent population. Like, we never talk about that. We don't talk about how what's going on in Colombia is a direct result. Like since plan Colombia, which was meant implemented by Biden, which was meant to curb the drug trade since plan Colombia, uh, was enacted. The drug trade out of Colombia has increased 33% with a higher DEA uh, presence and a heightened DEA presence there. We just don't talk about it, but we do talk about Israel, Palestine. And I don't know why there's video of Joe Biden going back from, I think it was 2003 where he said, Israel is our greatest asset in the middle East. And if Israel didn't exist, we would create Israel. Like, and he was vehement about that. And he said specifically to protect our interests. So, yeah, I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe that's what the, the int is. The only thing I know is that we, as a culture, we actually talk about it. It's always one-sided, always supportive of Israel. And, and, and this is the first time in my life where I've seen this amount of public pushback and public support um, to the point where you see the pe people protesting in the street and marching in solidarity um, with the Palestinian people. But it happens. And that's something that I think is unique and odd. And I, like, I, I didn't know why. And I still don't, I don't guess. I mean, I guess that we're just seeing a uh, awakening of the population. I mean, frankly, Western civilization. Yeah, that part I get. I just don't know why we kept why why it was we for my entire lifetime have had the, this conversation only about Israel without ever touching on all of our other colonial powers that we have around the world. Well, I mean, it might have something to do with the construction of Israel post uh, World War Two, with the uniqueness of the uh, situation as being an apartheid state, as a per, as opposed to like like a discrete apartheid state with like separation versus like oh, you know, just the Kurdish situation in Syria or Turkey and sort of the sectarian violence that goes on there. Who knows, right? Like, who knows what catches people's imagination and for what reason? I'm sure people have written about it. I have not read anything specific about it. My larger point about the whole situation is that you know we like to i think when it comes to and this will be my last point we can just sort of close out after this you know when it comes to the construction of the west and our interpretation of history and how the west was constructed i you know the myth of a civilized western society is just that it's a myth and that myth is largely predicated on the belief that certain types of violence no matter how extreme are not only acceptable but necessary for the progress of society right and i think that it's 
not surprising that Americans are able to excuse genocide because that's what we've been taught to do, especially if it's being done in order to or rather if it's being done with the justification that it's necessary for the continuation of Western society. Like when we talk about the genocide of the Native Americans, same when we talk about the about slavery and the genocide of other Native populations, we talk about it in a different light than when we talk about the genocide of Jewish people during World War II, I mean, which we talk about differently than we talk about the genocide of Africans by Germans in their concentration camps in, you know, pre-World War II, right? So we just happen to, as a society, have been taught to have very selective empathy, you know, a la moral monsters, that's Richard's love to quote, because that's just how we move things forward. And I think that people's willingness to accept that has become less and less. I was just going to say the genocidal roots of the United States does, I think you, it's very uh, impactful in how people perceive the things that are going on in uh, Israel, Palestine now, in that, like, uh, the settler colonialism of the United States, particularly from Britain, UK, like in the United States was especially genocidal, even comparative to the other colonial peers. The income in the, or the, the Spanish system was, was horrific too in the, in the sugar islands. Uh, but it was just, it was just heartless. Whereas the, the efforts of, uh, the colonists in the United States was specifically genocidal with the intent and ever like the, the motivation to commit genocide. And so by whitewashing that history and trying to absolve uh, our, our history's heroes of those crimes, it's made it that much more made people that much more susceptible to have it try and to try and fit modern day incarnations of that into that same framework. Yeah, I mean, just look at, we, we wiped out entire species, so to starve a people who were indigenous to the land when we came here. You can look at pictures of giant, just mountains of skulls of buffalo that we killed in order to kill the people who worshipped and fed on them. I mean, all you hear when you talk about the founding fathers online is how morally gray and complex it is that they love to rape people, but also they wrote a book one time. And that's like <laughs> it. But that's America, right? And it sounds kind of yeah. fucked up, but it's true. Thank you.